This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton. Section 17, Chapter 8, Part 2 Presidents and Problems. The recent presidential election preserves some trace of the old party system of America, but its tradition has very nearly faded like that of the party system of England. It is easy for an Englishman to confess that he never quite understood the American party system. It would perhaps be more courageous in him and more informing to confess that he never really understood the British party system. The planks in the two American platforms may easily be exhibited as very disconnected and ramshackle. But our own party was as much of a patchwork, and indeed, I think, even more so. Everybody knows that the two American factions were called Democrat and Republican. It does not at all cover the case to identify the former with liberals and the latter with conservatives. The Democrats are the party of the South and have some true tradition from the Southern aristocracy and the defense of secession and states' rights. The Republicans rose in the North as the party of Lincoln, largely condemning slavery. But the Republicans are also the party of tariffs, and are at least accused of being the party of trusts. The Democrats are the party of free trade, and in the great movement of twenty years ago, the party of free silver. The Democrats are also the party of the Irish, and the stones they throw at trusts are retorted by stones thrown at Tammany. It is easy to see all these things as curiously sporadic and bewildering, but I am inclined to think that they are as a whole more coherent and rational than our own old division of liberals and conservatives. There is even more doubt nowadays about what is the connecting link between the different terms in the old British party programs. I have never been able to understand why being in favor of protection should have anything to do with being opposed to home rule, especially as most of the people who were to receive home rule were themselves in favor of protection. I could never see what giving people cheap bread had to do with forbidding them cheap beer, or why the party which sympathizes with Ireland cannot sympathize with Poland. I cannot see why liberals did not liberate public houses, or conservatives conserve crofters. I do not understand the principle upon which the causes were selected on both sides, and I incline to think that it was with the impartial object of distributing nonsense equally on both sides. Heaven knows there is enough nonsense in American politics, too, towering and tropical nonsense like a cyclone or an earthquake. But when all is said, I incline to think that there was more spiritual and atmospheric cohesion in the different parts of the American party than in those of the English party, and I think this unity was all the more real, because it was more difficult to define. The Republican Party originally stood for the triumph of the North, and the North stood for the nineteenth century, that is, for the characteristic commercial expansion of the nineteenth century, for a firm faith in the profit and progress of its great and growing cities, its division of labor, its industrial science, and its evolutionary reform. The Democratic Party stood more loosely for all the elements that doubted whether this development was democratic or was desirable. 
all that looked back to jeffersonian idealism and the serene abstractions of the eighteenth century or forward to bryanite idealism and some simplified utopia founded on grain rather than gold along with this went not at all unnaturally the last and lingering sentiment of the southern squires who remembered a more rural civilization that seemed by comparison romantic along with this went quite logically the passions and the pathos of the irish themselves a rural civilization whose basis is a religion or what the nineteenth century tended to call superstition above all it was perfectly natural that this tone of thought should favor local liberties and even a revolt on behalf of local liberties and should distrust the huge machine of centralized power called the union in short something very near the truth was said by a suicidally silly republican orator who was running blaine for the presidency when he denounced the democratic party as supported by rome rum and rebellion they seem to me to be three excellent things in their place and that is why i suspect that i should have belonged to the democratic party if i had been born in america when there was a democratic party but i fancy that by this time even this general distinction has become very dim if i had been an american twenty years ago in the time of the great free silver campaign i should certainly never have hesitated for an instant about my sympathies or my side my feelings would have been exactly those that are nobly expressed by mr vatchel lindsay in a poem bearing the characteristic title of brian 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 and by the way nobody can begin to sympathize with america whose soul does not to some extent begin to swing and dance to the drums and gongs of mr vatchel lindsay's great orchestra which has the note of his whole nation in this yet a refined person can revile it a hundred times over as violent and brazen and barbarous and absurd but not as insincere there is something in it and that something is the soul of many million men but the poet himself in the political poem referred to speaks of bryan's fall over free silver as defeat of my boyhood defeat of my dream and it is only too probable that the cause has fallen as well as the candidate the william jennings bryan of later years is not the man whom i should have seen in my youth with the visionary eyes of mr vachel lindsay he has become a commonplace pacifist which is in its nature the very opposite of a revolutionist for if men will fight rather than sacrifice humanity on a golden cross it cannot be wrong for them to resist its being sacrificed to an iron cross i came into very indirect contact with mr bryan when i was in america in a fashion that made me realize how hard it has become to recover the illusions of a bryanite i believe that my lecture agent was anxious to arrange a debate and i threw out a sort of loose challenge to the effect that woman's suffrage had weakened the position of woman and while i was away in the wilds of oklahoma my lecture agent a man of blood-curdling courage and enterprise asked mr bryan to debate with me now mr bryan is one of the greatest orators of modern history and there is no conceivable reason why he should trouble to debate with a wandering lecturer but as a matter of fact he expressed himself in the most magnanimous in the most magnanimous and courteous terms about my personal position but said as i understood that it would be improper to debate on female suffrage 
as it was already part of the political system. And when I heard that I could not help a sigh, for I recognized something I knew only too well on the front benches of my own beloved land. The great and glorious demagogue had degenerated into a statesman. I had never expected for a moment that the great orator could be bothered to debate with me at all, but it had never occurred to me, as a general moral principle, that two educated men were forever forbidden to talk sense about a particular topic, because a lot of other people had already voted on it. What is the matter with that attitude is the loss of the freedom of the mind. There can be no liberty of thought unless it is ready to unsettle what has recently been settled, as well as what has long been settled. We are perpetually being told in the papers that what is wanted is a strong man who will do things. What is wanted is a strong man who will undo things. And that will be a real test of strength. Anyhow, we could have believed in the time of free silver fight that the Democratic Party was Democratic with a small d. In Mr. Wilson it was transfigured. His friends would say into a higher and his foes into a hazier thing. And the Republican reaction against him, even where it has been healthy, has also been hazy. In fact, it has been not so much the victory of a political party as a relapse into repose after certain political passions. And in that sense, there is a truth in the strange phrase about normalcy, in the sense that there is nothing more normal than going to sleep. But an even larger truth is this. It is most likely that America is no longer concentrated upon these faction fights at all, but is considering certain large problems upon which those factions hardly trouble to take sides. They are too large even to be classified as foreign policy, distinct from domestic policy. They are so large as to be inside as well as outside the state. From an English standpoint, the most obvious example is the Irish. For the Irish problem is not a British problem, but also an American problem. And this is true even of the great external enigma of Japan. The Japanese question may be a part of foreign policy for America, but it is a part of domestic policy for California. And the same is true of that other intense and intelligent Eastern people, the genius and limitations of which have troubled the world so much longer. What the Japanese are in California, the Jews are in America. That is, they are a piece of a foreign policy that has become embedded in domestic policy something which is found inside but still has to be regarded from the outside on these great international matters i doubt if americans got much guidance from their party system especially as most of these questions have grown very recently and rapidly to enormous size men are left free to judge of them with fresh minds and that is the truth of the statement that the Washington Conference has opened the gates of a new world. On the relations to England and Ireland, I will not attempt to dwell adequately here. I have already noted that my first interview was with an Irishman, and my first impression from that interview a vivid sense of the importance of Ireland in Anglo-American relations. And I have said something of the Irish problem, prematurely and out of its proper order, under the stress of that sense of urgency 
Here I will only add two remarks about the two countries respectively. A great many British journalists have recently imagined that they were pouring oil upon the troubled waters when they were rather pouring out oil to smooth the downward path and to turn the broad road to destruction into a butter slide. They seem to have no notion of what to do, except to say what they imagine the very stupidest of their readers would be pleased to hear, and conceal whatever the most intelligent of their readers would probably like to know. They therefore informed the public that the majority of Americans had abandoned all sympathy with Ireland, because of its alleged sympathy with Germany, and that this majority of Americans was now ardently in sympathy with its English brothers across the sea. Now, to begin with, such critics have no notion of what they are saying when they talk about the majority of Americans. To anybody who has happened to look in, let us say, on the city of Omaha, Nebraska, the remark will have something enormous and overwhelming about it. It's like saying that the majority of the inhabitants of China would agree with the Chinese ambassador in a preference for dining at the Savoy rather than the Ritz. There are millions and millions of people living in those great central plains of the North American continent, of whom it would be nearer the truth to say that they have never heard of England, or of Ireland either, than to say that their first emotional movement is a desire to come to the rescue of either of them. It is perfectly true that the more monomaniac sort of Sinn Feiner might sometimes irritate this innocent and isolated American spirit, by being pro-Irish. It is equally true that a traditional Bostonian or Virginian might irritate it by being pro-English. The only difference is that large numbers of pure Irishmen are scattered in those far places, and large numbers of pure Englishmen are not. But it is truest of all to say that neither England nor Ireland so much as crosses the mind of most of them once in six months. Painting up large notices of watch us grow, making money by farming with machinery, together with an occasional hold-up with six-shooters, and photographs of a beautiful murderess or divorcee, fill up the round of their good and happy lives, and fleet the time carelessly as in the golden age. The End of Section 17 Chapter 8 Part 2